Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Tis the season of goodwill and generosity. And boy, oh boy, was the Premier League in a giving mood today, despite the limited number of games due to COVID. The Etihad Stadium bore witness to the highest scoring boxing game of all time. The Saints overcame the Hammers in a five-goal thriller, and the North London clubs filled their stockings with convincing shutout wins. I'm Heath Pierce. That's Jimmy Conrad. The Kegel Lasso Boxing Day recap begins right now. What is going on, everyone? If you're watching this live on YouTube, I can't emphasize this enough. Smash that like button. Also, we want to hear from you, so get in the comment sections. Get off, get stuff off your chest. Yell at Jimmy. Yell at myself. Tell us what you had. <laughs> tell us where you're at. Tell us where you're from. Tell us what you're doing. Tell us what you got for Christmas if you want to. We'll throw the best comments on the screen, and we'll keep this thing going. And then some of you are listening to this in podcast form. That's so nice of you. You know it's even nicer subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And leave a glowing review, leave a rating, give us five stars, or whatever you're feeling at that moment. And uh, you can do it now while you listen. So we appreciate all of you. And by the way, while we're recording this, Brighton hosts Brentford. But as the intro mentioned, while COVID restricted the number of games, we retreated to a gluttony of goals in the day's other five games, 26 to be exact. So Jimmy Conrad, what is going on, man? How are you? I am excited. I saw goals on goals on goals today. They are the gifts that keep on giving. I'm excited to get into this. Unless you support one of the teams that got their asses slapped today. Just slapped around, Heath Pierce. Hey, I didn't get I, – my, my team didn't get their asses <laughs> no, slapped No, I around. know. I wasn't just saying – I was just saying – I was speaking you know, you're, I, I just want to point out that there are a few teams that were not able to play on Boxing Day, and there were a few teams that were not invited to play on Boxing Day, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, and I don't know which one is worse, but either way, we talked about this, Jimmy, for, for a while, right? How important Boxing Day is to the Premier League just because of the fact that they own a day of the year, right? It's their Super Bowl. It's the year where the entire world is paying attention. And, yes, you have some Turkish League. You have the Championship. You have some other – Small leagues, the, the the Scottish Premier League, obviously, going as well. But this is the one where the biggest league in the world owns that day. And you can see the value of that because of the results that took place. Uh, I mean, where, do we, where should we even start? Jimmy? Actually, let's start with – we'll go from uh, end to beginning. Let's start with the Aston Villa versus Chelsea. Now, Jimmy, I don't know if you remember my predictions when everybody was sort of calling me a coward. And I was calling myself a coward for taking the favorites – on all of these matches. Uh, but it turns out not a bad uh, day overall. Stevie G wasn't wasn't at the match. He was in isolation due to COVID. Leeds Villa postponed due to outbreak in, in, in the squad. Uh, Pulisic was at the number nine, Jimmy. What did you think of that? Obviously, I'll give my takes after this, but what was your initial take of uh, Pulisic at the number nine? Well, it's something they're continuing to try, at least until Romelu Lukaku comes back and is healthy right from the get-go. He came on as a second-half super sub for Trevo Chalaba, which I think really changed the game. And what's interesting about Lukaku going back in is that that forced Christian Pulisic to play the right wing-back position. So we basically have Pulisic not playing in his best position for Chelsea, and that gets a little frustrating at times. I will state for the record, it is kind of weird that they wear Borussia Dortmund colors, uh, you know, when Thomas Tuchel used to coach them. That always throws me off a little bit, but uh, different, different topic for another time. With regard to Pulisic, obviously, he's at his best when he can pick up the ball and run at players. And it's going to be a little bit harder for him to do that as a nine, or at least a false nine, trying to pick up the spots. Where is he going to create those numerical advantages? Yes, at times he can stretch the defense. And I know this kind of plays into more of a U.S. men's national team conversation. But if he can't pick up the ball at times and run at players, it's going to be hard for him, I think, to even enjoy what he's doing out there. And in some weird way, him going back to the right wing back position allowed him to do that. I don't know if he enjoyed yeah. it, per se, because he's got to defend a little bit more than I'm sure he wants to. But it's interesting times for Christian Pulisic. I don't know if he's found a home so much under Thomas Tuchel as to what his best spot is, what is his best role? Is he a super sub? Is he a starter? It, it's it's it's. I don't know what the future uh, is. What do you think about him? I mean, the future seems a little murky. I'd say about. I mean, they they value him clearly, but but if you're not going to play him in his best spot and have that type of success that he's already proven to have while wearing the number ten shirt for Chelsea, uh, I don't know. It's 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 interesting times for him. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's one of those things where you're like, okay, you could see him filling in the role here and there. I think being a role player within a team is always dangerous. I remember being told that I was that for one of my teams when I was playing, <laughs> and I was offended by it because I was like, okay, on one hand, that's great because you're going to get a lot of games that way. But on the other hand, you're like, Oh, I, I think I think they're I think they're using this in a derogatory term where it's like <laughs> you're so good at so many positions, we don't know where to put you. So we're gonna put you on the bench and then bring you into one of those positions. And so look at the number nine spot, I think it's not his best position, especially in in, in the way that they were having to to try to break down uh, Villa at certain times today. It didn't seem like he got involved for long long portions. Like you mm-hmm. said, he's best when he's on the ball all the time and running at defenders. I actually liked him at wing back, and I, I've never really considered him as a wing back because of his lack of defending. But if you watch the way that he pressed when he was the nine versus the way that he was pressing in the wing back position, he actually looks comfortable pressing in the wing back position. Whereas at the nine, he, he sometimes he just looks like he's a step late. It's kind of a half press, and in a team that needs to press really well together. He sometimes seemed like he was one of the ones letting the team down in terms of their pressing shape at the number nine. And by the way, happy holidays, Natalie. We appreciate you joining us as always. But when he was at the wingback position, I liked it, even though Natalie clearly doesn't. I, I didn't mind him there because his energy seemed high in the press, higher than again when he was up at the number nine position. And he's facing the field, which is where you want him. You want him facing the field, advancing the ball forward. Uh, although the deeper he drops, the more nervous I get when he's on the ball. But overall... I thought it uh, wasn't a bad performance. But to switch, to shift back to Chelsea in general, were you impressed with this team? When I saw Lukaku came in, obviously, it's just like when Lukaku joined the team. You go, well, what is this team missing? And you go, oh, they're missing Lukaku as soon as he's on the field, right? And then he's off the field again. You're, they're looking for answers, and you see him back on the field. He scores. But just his impact, and not just, not just his, 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 his impact on, on, on scoring goals, but I'm talking more about his impact and just freeing up other players on the field. Mm-hmm. As soon as he occupies those center backs, as soon as he's occupying space, it just gives so much freedom to other players around them. I thought Kovacic was also a really, really bright spot in terms of his willing to, willingness to advance the ball forward. Doesn't help Pulisic's chances of getting more time. But I just thought overall Chelsea just looked completely different than they have without Lukaku. Obviously, he's coming on. His role is increasing in, ter- in terms of his minutes. But I don't know. What was your take overall for Chelsea in this one? Yeah, with regard to Lukaku... I mean, he his his addition to the team was the biggest reason why I picked Chelsea to win the Premier League. He was, for me, the missing link to them to have that, that success over a long period of time. And he started off really well, then obviously got hurt or wasn't scoring prior to getting hurt, then got hurt, and now he's back. I feel like you saw a version of him today, like, that's why we signed the guy. That's exactly the difference that he makes up there to the points that you make, that he occupies so many different players. Plus, when you look at his replacements, because they got rid of Giroud, because they got rid of Tammy Abraham, they don't necessarily have a big guy up top that can just bang and battle with those center backs and make it difficult. And when they put up a Pulisic, when they maybe put up a Mount or a Havertz or a Timo Werner or oh, you can name a whole bunch of guys, Ziyech, all these guys. None of them. None of them are gonna. None of them would have made a Villa struggle whatsoever. But as listen, soon as Lukaku came in, they started to worry. They started to struggle. They started to have to foul. They got frustrated. The game changed exactly. for them. No, but when you put Lukaku next to any of those guys I just mentioned, and one of them is a grown-ass man, and the rest of them look like boys, you know, and you're, and, and that's the difference. You have a grown-ass man who's up top, and that that I'm I'm kind of sad that Jorginho took the penalty at the end, that Romelu Lukaku earned all by himself by outrunning two players, earning the penalty, and the, Jorginho should have been like, you know what, buddy, this one's all you, because I think he needs, even though he scored 15 minutes after coming on with a header, which was a very nice glancing header. And, and that alone is another reason why that makes Chelsea more dangerous, right? You don't, have, you don't always have to whip a ball hard and low on the ground because you have these little guys up top. You got a guy that can get on the end of things, can create that space, can get on the end of headers. And so there's a lot of different reasons that makes, well, having Lukaku makes the team a little bit more dynamic. But he just has that, that physical presence. Obviously, his feet continue to get better and better. His composure in the box has just been light years of where it was even a couple of years ago with Manchester United. Going to Inter Milan was a great decision from him. Learning from Antonio Conte, who's obviously starting to, we'll get into Spurs in a second, but elevating the performances of some of the players there as well. And I think that's changed his career. And, and now he's got to continue to tap into that because sometimes when he's not as confident, he starts to fall back into those other things. And, and, and I, I don't know why I'm bringing Ricardo Pepe into this conversation, but what I think Lukaku has also done really well at over the last three or four years as he's matured and evolved as a player 
is that even if he's not scoring, he's still trying to do the little things. Draw the fouls, get on the end of crosses, occupy players that create space for other players, making those thankless runs, pressing very hard, tracking things down, like 50-50 balls that are in the back. I mean, that's essentially a target, the, the defender for West Ham. He had the edge on Lukaku, but he times his run well, he bodies him out, and all of a sudden that leads to a penalty and that ices the game for Chelsea. I mean, those little things are going to matter if they really want to be title contenders. Jimmy, I'm looking at Villa, and just to give a quick word on them, I, I, I'm on who scored looking at their, their, their run of form, and it's like Christmas lights. Green, red, green, red, <laughs> green, red. Literally, uh, going back to their, their, uh, their win against uh, Crystal Palace. I mean, what, what do you think this means for them? Obviously, they've had some postpones before. They have a postponing after the, against uh, the upcoming match against Leeds on the 28th. It's been postponed. They play against Brentford after that. But then they've got United. Uh, and then they've got uh, United. And then uh, they got United in the FA Cup. And then they got United again in the league. And then they've got Everton. Uh, and, and so, you know, what is it for them that, that, that you think needs to, needs to turn around? Because... Honestly, they didn't look like they, they they looked competitive against Chelsea for large parts until Lukaku came in. And when Lukaku came in, the whole game changed in terms of their dynamic, their ability to make adjustments to 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 neutralize Chelsea. Uh, I mean, wh- what did you see from from Villa, and was there anything alarming to you in terms of uh, their upcoming schedule? I would just say this really quick. I'll be a, a Villa apologist just because Luis Miguel Echegaray is in here. Since Stevie G's taken over, they've won all the games that they should win, and they've essentially lost the games that they should have lost. They've, they've lost to Man City, and they were competitive in that one, to your point, Heath Pierce, 2-1. They lost to Liverpool, 1-0. Maybe a ref call either way. Maybe get them a, a, a draw on that. And then they lose to a Chelsea team that, when Lukaku played, did make a big But wasn't difference. this the argument, Jimmy? Wasn't this the argument that, I mean, Luis talked about this, right? Obviously, a Villa fan. LME said that, you know, they, they did well. They, they, they created chances. They had opportunities to get points out of those games. But isn't the real test for Villa then to be able to get points against these top four, top six teams? I mean, this was, again, it seemed like there was moments there where you're like, okay, there might be something in it for them. You know, going up going up one on an own goal, Reese James flicks it on mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But they were still good in the run of play. It wasn't like it was a lucky against the run of play type of goal opportunity. But then it just seemed like they didn't have the answers later on in the match. Yeah, only one shot on goal for Villa. So I guess that gives me a little bit of concern that once Chelsea regain kind of control and put their Chelsea stamp on things, especially under Tuchel, that just going to make life very difficult. Sure, if you're going to score, we're going to make you earn it and, and tire you out. And they were fortunate. Even when that ball came in and Reese James scored off the, the own goal, when the ball got whipped in, there was one player, I think, from Villa in the box, maybe two. And there was five or six or seven Chelsea players, and it just was unfortunate. Chelsea are very committed, I think, especially after having a bad run on that side of the ball over the last you know month, let's say, five weeks, of giving a lot of goals, shipping, up, uh, shipping a lot of goals. Villa, for me, I wasn't expecting them. I think I was, even our preview, I thought maybe a draw here. I thought there was enough there from Villa, especially at home, to, to give us something. But I thought when Lukaku came on, it just changed the game and it really changed the dynamic of everything. And that was a really good good sub by Tuchel. You know, I think one of the knocks on Lampard at times was his in-game management. Ole Gunnar, another not very good at in-game management. Tuchel will make a bold call at times. He doesn't get it always. He doesn't get it right always. But there are times where he, he gets it right. And today was that day. Uh, and it must be nice to have a Lukaku to come off the bench. But with regard <laughs> to Villa, Villa, you know, they they I think they were a little unfortunate because they had that schedule where they played Norwich away. And then they were supposed to play Burnley. That would have given you probably at home, that would probably give you a little bit of momentum, right? Feeling confident going into this Chelsea game. Instead, that Burnley game gets postponed. Now you're waiting uh, a little bit, you know, a week. No, no, it looks like that. 12 days before you play your next game. So I don't know. I, I feel I feel for Villa a little bit, but I still don't think they're a team that can maybe take points off of the top four regularly. So I'm not too surprised that this is how it played out. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, again, the, the only last point that I would say for, for Chelsea was just I was really uh, – I really enjoyed watching Kovacic when he came on. He was another spark that I really liked. Driving the ball forward the way that mm-hmm. he does just brings a different dynamic to the team, just that willingness to engage with Lukaku and push teams forward. It just allows – you know what it's like. When you have a player that can drive, Jimmy, you just – the defense is able to move up. The game gets a little bit more predictable around you, knowing that you have somebody that can advance the lines on the dribble that like that mm-hmm. a little bit. But let's move on to – a record-breaking match, Jimmy, from one team desperately in need of uh, a working number nine to Manchester City, who don't need a working number nine. They don't need number nine at all. They don't need anything, it seems like, right now. Winning 6-3 over Leicester. 
Uh, Ferran Torres is in Barcelona right now. By the way, Jimmy, and if you uh, haven't been on the Twitter sphere the last few minutes, he's in Barcelona with his team, uh, and and he's ready to 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 make that move or or seal that move. I think it's a five year deal or something like that. Uh, and and a good deal for Manchester City, who who don't seem to be in a hurry to replace him, don't seem to be in a hurry to replace anybody right now or fill any sort of slots. Uh, what what was your what were your main takeaways from this City game? I mean, and, and how much do you consider them favorites to win the Premier League at this point? I think they're heavy, heavy favorites. They were so good in, in this particular game. Ferran Torres maybe didn't pan out the way that they wanted to when he came in. I just feel like they have an excess of those types of players in their team. So the fact that they're like, eh, we lost who? What's his name again? Ferran Torres. We still scored six goals, you know, and, and against Leicester is ridiculous. And if you watch the first half of this game, and if you're a City supporter, they're in back and through. It is so ridiculous. They're they're off the ball running. They're third person running. Whatever you want to use to define it is so good, and, and they're always looking for it. And and it just it's so hard. You've been out there before on the field where if you have a team that's that locked in on how they're supposed to play and always moving and always wanting the ball, you can't you can't defend it for ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. Now Leicester didn't do themselves any favors. Tielemans decided to give up two penalties. Rightfully, those were two penalties. And oh, by the way, do you think they were both like uh, clear, clear penalties? Yeah, I think they were. Uh, and and it's unfortunate as us as defenders who've defended a lot of times in corners, getting into tussles and throwing people down. I might have done that a few times. You know, they just didn't have VAR to, to uh, hold me accountable. So I get it. And and what's interesting about set pieces in this game is, in particular is that City was up 4-0 after 30 minutes. Completely took their foot off the, 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 the pedal, whatever metaphor we want to use. Mm-hmm. James Madison, I thought, was excellent. Um, Iannaccio was excellent. And they got back into it. It was 4-3. And even Pep Guardiola said after the game that there might have been an equalizer there for Leicester. I mean, that's how poor City were defensively and just got real casual. I it's love when Pep like, Guardiola says like stuff like that after a 6-3 win. Yeah, know. of course. But what's oh, crazy is that with 4-3, the way that City win the game – are on two set pieces, which feels so uncity like for them to go and like kind of just a rugged physical way to, to win the game when they're so pretty uh, more often than not. So I just thought that was an introduce, uh, interesting contradiction, excuse me. And I do think there's some vulnerabilities in the team. Now, Pep Guardiola came out and also said that Ruben Diaz was one card away from getting suspended and he didn't want to miss the Brentford game. I'm like, what? Dude, that's why he, <laughs> Big game that's the him. game you want to miss, dude. Who cares about Brentford, you know? So I thought that was interesting. And, you know, I don't think Laporte is still the first choice guy, even though he he scored. I think the, the pairing of, of Stones and Diaz is, is the right way forward. But there's still, we saw it too in the Champions League when they went six to three with, with RB Leipzig. There's still something there. I know they haven't given up that many goals this season. They've already scored 50, which is crazy. And it, it, they're unstoppable right now. Yeah. Ultimately, to answer your question, I'd be really hard-pressed to say that they're not the favorites. I mean, Liverpool, I think, are very, very close as well. But they have to deal with Africa Cup of Nations and everything goes in there. I still think Chelsea's a little bit off of it unless Lukaku is healthy the rest of the way. Yeah, I mean, looking at the table right here, you've obviously got uh, Man City sitting on top and clearly. I mean, the thing about Man City that was shocking to me is the way they approached this game mm-hmm. was like they were trying to find an equalizer in stoppage time from the first minute. Like, they're passing mm-hmm. their movement, the chances mm-hmm. they were creating. And don't get me wrong. On the flip side, Leicester squandered a lot of what I would consider half chances, top of the box. Madison was hitting everything over the bar. They were just looking for that square. They would get down into the box, and they'd hit that square pass, uh, and then someone hit it first time. And There just wasn't that clinical nature of it that could have changed the game earlier on for them. But just to watch City, the passing, the weight of the pass, the movement, the timing of everything, and the way that they were attacking from the very start, it was insane. Like, City was... First, uh, you know, sitting on 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 just their their pressing lines continuously changed, trying to figure out what do you do with this Man City side, uh, and and they were just too good from the very very start. And so on the flip side, again, like you said, Le- Leicester City were able to come back, and now you're looking at the table. It's a year for Leicester where you're like, man, what could have been, but also are they sort of normalizing a little bit? And and the way City are playing right now, I just. It's just not one single player, right? I, I, again, we, we we joked about it before in the preview, like the, the the luxury of being able to say Phil Foden, nah, you know Jack Grealish, nah, you guys have had a night on the town. We're just going to not play you all. Everybody's begging just to get to eleven players. Just shows you the depth of the squad and the quality that they have and the dynamic. And they're all just completely different styles of players that somehow fit into this mold. And that's primarily because they play with this false nine 
setup where Kevin De Bruyne can roam and you have a Phil Foden who can roam and you have just so much quality on the pitch that it's impossible to, to stop on their day. And any of you that are just now tuning in or listening to this, uh, we appreciate all of you. Make sure you comment, make sure you like, subscribe so you get these first thing or you're able to join us live whenever we do these shows live. Again, we appreciate all of you, especially this time of year in the holidays when we're being thankful, a little more emotional than usual, perhaps emotional in our uh, critiques of these matches as well. Jimmy, any final thoughts from this Manchester City yeah, game? I would just say that in fairness to Leicester City, they were without Johnny Evans. Uh, Wilfred Ndidi, who usually sits in front of the back four, was not available for this. Soyan Chu was out. So they're missing some of their starting center backs. Obviously, Fofana getting hurt very early on, I think really derailed their defense right from the get-go because he was going to be the guy. Yet yeah. uh, James Justin was another player. I know they got Luke Thomas out wide left, but James Justin was really emerging last season. Pereira was out. So we, I think they're, we could argue that maybe all four of their guys that started in the back line last season weren't even in this game. And Wilfred Ndidi, who's arguably one of the best CDMs in all of the Premier yeah. League. And I love that Man City, to your point, just just said, let's just go pressure the shit out of these guys and and let's just see what they can handle. And they just couldn't handle anything. And Tielemans didn't, you know, uh, shower himself in glory with giving up two penalties, which we could rather argue. have Jamie Vardy or or uh, or Evans, Johnny Evans on the on the pitch. Well, I mean, which do you think could have been more impactful? Well, today I don't think they needed. Well, Jamie Vardy would have helped, I guess, in some capacity. I thought Iannaccio was pretty good. So was James Madison <laughs> yeah. and Lookman. I mean, Lookman scored a fantastic. very good goal. Yeah, uh, Iannaccio had a goal and two assists, and and they were busy. They were close to potentially getting a a four four result, but they just couldn't hang on. And unfortunately, set yeah. pieces is kind of what undone Leicester in this one. I don't think I w- City are completely invincible. I, I think there there is some some cracks there, but can you expose those cracks? That's the biggest thing. And it's almost like they challenge you. Oh, you think you can break us, huh? Well, you can't. But if you do, yeah, we'll still score six or whatever. So. It's interesting. This is an interesting City team that has a different vibe than maybe City's teams in the past. Yeah, I mean, my only my only thing that I would say about uh, Leicester is I thought Yannick Vestergaard would be a little bit bigger or better yeah. than he is. I mean, he's a big body. He's a big frame. I appreciate that. But he's not Soyuncu when he's on the field. And he is uh, a Dane like you, Jimmy, with a gigantic <laughs> head and his thighs <laughs> rubbed together when he, when he, when he runs. But I thought that he, I, I thought that he could maybe step to the level. I mean, again, when you talk about like Norwich and some of these teams that are kind of elevator teams that you expect to go down, you see a little bit more of these players that just seem a step slow for the Premier League. And he was one that I, I just wish or hope he can still kind of round round into a form that makes him challenge to be a, uh, a starter in this team regularly, or at least lift the level of of that back line when they're they're depleted like the way that they are now. Um, what, one yeah, last thing on that. It's just this is a real test for Brendan Rodgers. He gets a lot of, and deserve it, respect and, and admiration for what he's accomplished with Leicester City. Obviously, winning the FA Cup last season for the first time in their 137-year history and and almost getting into the top four a couple seasons in a row. I mean, he's he's getting a lot out of this group of players, but right now he's really up against it. And I think it's going to be a, a nice challenge for him to say, okay, we got to push this result aside and continue to look forward. They're currently in ninth on 22 points. That's 13 points behind Arsenal for fourth. So they have a lot of work to do if they want to get really get back into contention for Europe. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, looking at this top four, obviously we're going to get to Arsenal. We're going to get to Spurs, both of them sitting four and five in the, in, in the league right now, jumping West Ham, Manchester United, obviously. there's And then it, it's really hard to look at the table right now because if you look at the matches played, there's such a discrepancy between Arsenal and Spurs, Arsenal and Man United, Chelsea and Man United. I mean, you're talking about a range of, 16 games to 19 games right now uh, with Liverpool up there sitting on uh, in second place just on just on 18 matches as well. But Leicester down there on 17 obviously have some games to make up as well and perhaps some some uh, some ability to to make up some ground there. But you're right. It's definitely going to be a hard challenge for this is probably the biggest challenge for Brendan Rodgers uh, in terms of now being a little bit more under under the gun or under the pressure. Uh, and then looking down at the very bottom, Jimmy, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of teams haven't played a lot of matches. Burnley, I don't know if they're still in the Premier League uh, <laughs> matches. They haven't played in a very long time. Uh, and then and then Norwich. Uh, actually, we're going to take a quick break, Jimmy. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Arsenal um, and and the other matches from today. But if you're listening to this on audio, we will be right back. If you're watching this live with us, stay right here. <laughs> 
From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. You ready for this? Yeah. If is the most original and heartfelt movie in years. Magic like this comes around once in a lifetime. This Friday, experience it with your whole family. Can we do it again? If ready PG. All right, Jimmy, we are back in a flash, just as we promised every single time we deliver on that 100% of the time. North <laughs> London, Jimmy, is back. No one thought we'd say this this decade or anytime uh, soon, but uh, teams are on, a, on, on quite a run. Let's start with the Arsenal match, winning 5-0 over Norwich from the start. Norwich just look outmatched. And again, I don't know what to think of them. Uh, they, the... the Manager obviously seems to think that they have an opportunity that they've gotten better somehow or some way. Uh, but here they are just getting an absolute beating from Arsenal, who five straight wins in all competitions and the uh, Gunners' biggest away win since 2009. Did you get a chance to watch this one? Yes, I saw a good portion of it, or at least to the point where I knew who was in control and who was going to win, which means I basically just watched the first, you know, 10 minutes and I knew exactly what was going to go down. Very good performance from Arsenal. What I love about watching them play right now is it looks like they're enjoying themselves. I know that sounds kind of, well, nice analysis, you know, but, but there is that element of confidence and confidence matters. And it's one of those things where maybe if we looked at Arsenal two or three months ago, or even last season, something doesn't go right on the field and their heads go down. Everybody's heads go, you know, and they're like, uh, you know, they're unsure of themselves. If they make that same mistake this season, or at least in this current run, they're like, hey, we got it. Next play. You know what I mean? They're already moving on. It's 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 so subtle and so nuanced, but you can tell they believe in each other. And you wonder if there's some Obama Yang twist to this, that that with Obama Yang not in the picture, and, and it seems like the team's looking to move forward without him, it, it feels like they've come alive in a way, it, and oddly, because I feel like Obama Yang is pretty beloved from what I've read behind the scenes. They really like him. He's just not a leader per se. He's not captain material, yeah. but but they they love him as a person. So I, I wonder, but it seems like the team's flowing a lot better. Lacazette's been very lively. Uh, Saka, obviously, tremendous today, creating goals by himself. I do have a lot of questions of Norwich and their defending in general. But when you have a team like Norwich, whose backs are against the wall, who are unsure of themselves right now, the first thing that you need to do is you got to score early. You got to make them, you got to put that seed of doubt that they've got absolutely no chance in this game and that this game is going to go a lot like the other games that they've been playing and where they just don't play very well. They don't really have an identity. They're not creating their own luck. And I think Arsenal have done a lot of that in a lot of different ways. And I've been really impressed with Arsenal. I've got nothing but positive things to say about how they performed. You know, Smith Rowe came off the bench and, and scored. You know, so they have a little bit of depth there. Tomiyasu didn't play today, but they still got the clean sheet against a team that can score. They're not going to maybe win, but they can they can hurt you at times. And I thought Arsenal were very complete on both sides of the ball. So I, I'm here. I'm here to I'm here to applaud Arsenal, baby. Let's yeah. get after. It. I don't do this I, very often. I mean, so everybody yeah. just soak it up. Oh, I don't think anybody does it very often, Jimmy. But when we do, <laughs> we do it together. You know, it's a it's a community event when we celebrate Arsenal. But look, they. Arsenal are one that I, I think Arteta is continuing to show his evolution as a leader. And Arteta was one to back Aubameyang for a brand new big contract, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and to be the guy. And now for him to be able to cut ties. And we see a lot of this in the Premier League where there are a few players that are guaranteed starters when they're fit and healthy. And Aubameyang's numbers were a guaranteed starter when fit and healthy two seasons ago. Uh, and now you, you, you kind of say, well... You know, Jimmy, you can always have one of these guys that maybe breaks the rules and gets away with it. You know, that star player. And if that star mm -hmm. player is not delivering, well, now you've got to make some hard decisions. And again, I know he's a great guy. I'm sure he's a lot of fun. I know the young players have him. But there's a thin line of that being liked and not delivering on the field and being a big flashy guy and, and now breaking the rules and now trying to, you know, you, you start to develop this culture of like, oh, this guy's allowed to be above the law, but he's mm -hmm. showing up when he wants. And I think Arteta did a good job of being able to to change that, that the team is responding. It is a very young team in terms of uh, experience, in terms of uh, the vulnerability of these players of being influenced by somebody who perhaps isn't the right leader, like you said. Probably a good friend, probably a good guy to hang out with, probably a good guy to grab a beer with uh, seven nights a week, but probably not <laughs> the leader you want for some of your players that you're trying to shape and mold into being uh, stars. Speaking of young players that are being shaped and mold, Fabrizio Romano called the Norwegian um, Odegaard the best under-the-radar transfer, transfer of 2021. And I, I want to get your take on Odegaard because, for me, 
even looking at him during his loan spell, right? His loan spell was 14 games, one goal, two assists. And I looked at him and I go, that's ah, a little bit of a luxury player when you watch him, right? And that inefficiency and, and He's almost like a false 10 in terms of like doesn't have that final product, is good at controlling the flow of the game, but how much of that is luxury versus actual function? Does he have the ability to kind of turn that into bigger numbers and more mm-hmm. consistent numbers? Obviously, this year, that was with 14 games. This year, he's on 17 games, four goals, three assists, and just more clinical. You know, he has all those pieces of being able to control the flow of the game, read the game, combine, triangulate, do all the things that he does really well, but now he's starting to have a little more of a final product. Do you think that he's an un- underrated transfer? Because obviously everybody knows him. They know what he was supposed to be. They know what he might not end up being in terms of the potential that was placed on him as a teenager. Uh, I mean, what's your take on Odegaard so far in this season? Yeah, it's. I'm glad we're talking about him. Four goals and three assists so far in the Premier League, I believe in 17 games. He did have a stretch there where he had three goals in three state games starting in early December where he scored against United. Unfortunately, a 3-2 loss against Everton and a 2-1 loss. And then against Southampton in a 3-0 win. I think to your point, this is a, a kid who signed with Real Madrid at what, 15, 16, or whatever it was. The hype has been unreal for him for a very long time. And he's got on going, gone out at, on loan. Excuse me. God, I can't speak today. Gone out on loan. And I feel like, where is his identity? Who is he supposed to be playing for? Is it the club he's on loan for? Or is he trying to actually play that's more similar to his parent club, which was Real Madrid for a very long time? And now, even when he was with Arsenal last season, he had to know deep down, well, I'm not. I'm only going to be here six months, man. Like, this is kind of how it works for me. I'm here for a little bit. I make friends with everybody, and then I leave. But now when they made this, this deal permanent, I think it changes your commitment to the team in, in a way where he can pick his spots, I guess. And, and we've seen that because what I love about his game is he's a connector, right? He's that connective tissue that we talk about a lot, Heath, yeah. where – even if he's not influencing the game with stats, he's still influencing the game with maybe getting the ball to, to Saka 10 yards higher up the field. And we know, we, you and I both know that getting that ball 10 yards higher up the field makes a difference. And, but my, and my also, problem, by the, but, but, but my, my issue with him as a player, to jump in on that thought, was that he was always stuck between, uh, at, at Madrid even, as a, stuck between a Modric and a Tony Cruz. Like you don't do this super good, and you don't do that super good. Mm-hmm. You're stuck in between where it's like, yeah, like you said, on any day, that connective tissue is unbelievable. But it's kind of the Weston McKinney role where it's like, well, you're not unbelievable defensively, and we think that you can be really good attacking-wise, but can you consistently have a final product that when you get your chance to put it in front of the box or put it in front of the goal, you can set somebody up. When you get a chance to score, can you score consistently? And that's the thing that I'm seeing a little bit more of this year than when he was on loan, which was just like, oh my gosh, he's so fun to watch because he's just got that like ticky-tocky rhythm of just sort of almost a, almost a Raquel May type of just knowing where the game is all the time and kind of being able to just feed it almost like a metronome of sorts. Uh, but missing that final product. Sorry to jump in on your No, point, no, I think that's a great point. And I also think because how Arsenal are set up with the double pivot with Partey and Lukonga or Partey and Xhaka, it allows Odegaard to maybe pick those spots. And because you have Martinelli, who's in fine form right now, and Saka on the other side or Smith Rowe, these guys are hungry to get the ball and, and run, right? They, those, those players want to run. Martinelli, maybe not as much, but, but he likes to find those, those pockets as well. And if Lacazette's playing well, then there's those spaces that I think Odegaard is getting better at. They just seem like they're flowing right now. There's, a, there's definitely a rhythm to the team. And, and obviously, it's always nice to have Norwich to, <laughs> to really uh, express yourself and, and find that rhythm without too much trouble. But uh, I like Odegaard's game a lot. I, in terms of underrated transfers, to get your point back to Fabrizio, I almost like Tomiyasu a slightly better than Odegaard. So if we throw Tomiyasu in there, who's a tremendous right back, who just does his job and does it well, when you have a lot of those players, and I love that you say this, Heath, and I've stolen it plenty of times, but if you have a lot of players that are seven and eights out of 10 every single game, Tomiyasu is one of those. You can count on him to be the same. And Tierney had a good game today. If Tierney can be a seven or eight there, and you got Ben White and Gabriel, Ramsdale and goal, and I just feel like Arsenal is definitely trending in the right direction. And I think Tomiyasu will be, for me, is a little bit more of an underrated transfer. But Odegaard should be in that conversation. And when you got Arsenal making those types of signings, that's what they used to do. And, and now it feels like they're getting back to that a little bit. And they don't have to go splash the cash for all these players all the time. 
I agree. And, and again, I, I think there is a certain level of credit to the consistency that this team has, like you said, what, whether it's White, uh, what, uh, Tierney and, and whatever, or, or, or Ramsdale, for example. I think that back line is just showing another level of consistency that I think is super important in terms of just lifting their game. Or Tomiyasu, like you said, there's just so many tools now at their disposal that you're starting to find more and more consistency out of this team. But Ramsdale is the other one where I'm like, Arsenal, whenever I'd get my hopes up, it's always somewhere down the spine where we ultimately <laughs> get let down. Shaka was one that's con consistently let me down for years in terms of somebody that I expect to be a, just another level higher in terms of consistency as a leader within the team and then ultimately lets us down with red cards or RAS challenges or just has a shocker of a performance. But Ramsdale's one where, I, I don't know, I, I can't say enough about just... There's another one, though, that's yeah. a seven or eight every single game. Yeah. And, and there's something about that consistency. Tomiyasu... Ben White, once he got healthy and started to partner with Gabriel, awesome. Those two, Tierney back to being full health. Partey's all of a sudden gotten a little bit steadier. When you're surrounded by guys that are always playing at a 7 or 8 level, and sometimes they're going above that with a 9 or a 10, it just makes the game easier for you, and you can concentrate on what you do best. And I really like what Arsenal's about right now. Keith, I got a trivia for you. You ready for this? Mm, yeah. With, with his second goal today... Uh, Bukayo Saka is the second youngest Arsenal player to reach 10 Premier League goals for the club. Who was the first or who was the youngest? Nicholas Anelka. God, oh, man, you can't even pause for that. Wow. So Saka's. Well, I know you, 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 that's a trick question because you, you, you just naturally want to say Thierry Henry on, on some level, but that's not the way it worked out. That's not the way it was. Yeah. Saka, 20 years, 112 days. Nicholas Anelka, 19 years, 225 days to get 10 league goals. Saka, special player. Another question for you, Heath, and anybody else okay. that's listening, hit us up at Kegolasapod on Twitter if you want to answer this later. And then obviously here live on YouTube. How many goals do you think Saka will end up with this year? Because he got 20 in him? Oh, man. 20 is a lot, man. I know, but 20. he's already at 10. We're not yeah. even halfway through the season. I, I, I would say halfway. I would say if he if he finishes on 18, 17, 18, it's a it, it's it's a phenomenal. I mean, I think he's on pace to have an unbelievably phenomenal year uh, and and score clutch goals. And, and by the way, he scores Halfway a wide, wide range of goals uh, as well, which I really like about him. Very opportunistic goals, just taking chances, uh, being able to slot them to the back post, things like that, low and hard. Uh, those are the kinds of goals that I like. The kinds of goals, by the way, that that oh, Sterling like struggled five to. League, five league goals right now. So he's ten goals total. Uh, 10 goals in all comps. Got it. Yeah. But you'd still take 10 in all. It's a, a, I mean, 20. Sorry. I would say 20. I would say 17 uh, in, in all. I still think that there's still a, uh, a, mm. a value. You know what? I read, that, I read that trivia wrong, everybody. It's the second youngest Arsenal player to reach 10 Premier League goals for the club in general. Not this season. So I, I'm sorry. He only has five Premier League goals. So how many okay. goals do you think he'll end up with? Um, or what would you be happy with, given what given what he does for the club? He's 19 games in. I would say I would say if he's in if he's in that 13 to 17 range across That'd all competitions. Yeah, I mean it, it. It just requires a brace in a couple of matches that I think he's going to get those opportunities uh, as well. You know, he clearly clearly can show up against Norwich, and there's more Norwiches in the league. Uh, Newcastle might be one of them, Jimmy. Uh, who knows mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> along the way? But uh, yeah, I, I think. If he's in double digits, I think he's good. I think if he's in that uh, kind of 15 to 17 range, he's great. Uh, and and he's probably knocking on the door for a brand new contract saying, hey, you know, Aubameyang did this for a couple of seasons. You guys wrote a big fat check for him. What are you guys going to give me now? I mean, <laughs> Aubameyang scored a lot more goals than that. But um, And by the way, Des said that uh, Martin Odegaard, our producer Des said, Martin Odegaard really took his game to another level at Real Sociedad. And they were desperate to extend his loan, but Real Madrid weren't into the idea. So yeah, that's right. Uh, just just to give a little perspective as to um, you know where where he's cut his teeth over the last uh, few seasons. But let's move on to the other North London. Uh, despite my attempt to to eat up all the time with Arsenal, let's talk about Spurs <laughs> versus Palace. Uh, Patrick Vieira, another one of the managers that's that's had to uh, find themselves sidelined due to COVID, um, or at least a, a, a positive or whatever test. COVID, I can't speak on them. By the way, isn't it bizarre that in Major League Soccer, they never mention the players' names, but in in uh, in the Premier League, the coaches just outright say who has COVID. Obviously, it's no secret when, like, your starters aren't on the team or aren't playing, but it just – I think it's like some sort of HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA laws or something like that where you can't actually mention people right. by name. But in the Premier League, they're like, he has it, he has it, he has it. 
Uh, and maybe it's being more normalized now and it just helps with transparency as well, but not to get off topic. Let's talk about Tottenham uh, winning 3-0 versus Palace uh, and get, get your uh, initial thoughts on that. And we'll jump a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, really quick. Just got to give a shout out to Antonio Conte. Since he's taken over for Nuno Espirito Santo in the league here, he's got four wins and six draw or two draws, excuse me, out of six games. And I thought today was a really impressive performance. And again, another North, North London team that's looking a little lively, right? They got that sense of belief and that when they go forward, they're going with this purpose where maybe they're committing another number or two that they weren't under Jose Mourinho or not under Espirito Santo. But there is something feeling a little bit different. And, and what was interesting is that when you watch Conte's teams, they do sit back behind the ball a little bit. But with regard to Palace, I think they did it on purpose to bait the center backs to, hey, you have a little bit more time than you think, baby. Why don't you take an extra mm -hmm. touch? And then once they take that extra touch, it's a cue for the whole team. We're pressing that next pass as soon as possible. It's going to create some gaps. We're going to try to turn the ball around quickly and then kill, kill him on the counter. And, and that's what they set up in the first goal. Obviously, Harry Kane looks like he's enjoying himself again. That's a big deal. And, and he scored a good goal today. I thought Lucas Moura was fantastic. I, I, there's something about Antonio Conte, man. He, he does a very good job of getting everybody on the same page. And then from there, building confidence within those parameters. And, and I can't say enough about By what the he's way, done Jimmy, looking, looking, while managing COVID, right? Which has been look, crazy. Looking at this photo right now, is that not a foul, a foul to you? That's a foul. That's a foul, right? 100%. He went over the... I mean, look, I, I, I've always... You know, you, you learn it at a very young age that if you can get up before the before the, your opponent, you don't allow them to be able to get up and challenge for a ball. Usually that's vertical where you can get an elbow on somebody or get a, you know get their, your arms up, up and wide so that they can't get up and challenge for the ball. You get up first. But that was one where he went over the back of him. And I was like, man, this just seems like there was going to be a, a review of this going over the top. But nobody even seemed to argue from from Which is the, crazy. The it was a foul because he yeah. couldn't. He got hit before he could even jump at the ball. And I was a little Lucas Mora climbing the ladder to, to power head it at the back post. That one was a foul. That said, and we're not trying to dismiss anything about Spurs' performance here. They still deserve to win. Yeah. There was only really one team on the field that was trying to play. Palace, uh, you know, had some ideas. They had, okay, they were trying to make it dif difficult. Connor Gallagher, I thought, again, was pretty solid, improving his worth. But this was a day for Spurs. And this is one of those things where I don't know if we could say that consistently under Mourinho and Espirito Santo. They clearly were the best team, and they got the result to prove it. And when you look at their – they got Southampton next, and then in a couple of days they got Watford after that on New Year's. Then they got Chelsea in leg one of the League Cup semifinal. And then they start the FA Cup. Then they have Chelsea again, and they play Arsenal at home in the league. And then they play Chelsea away. So, so it's getting a little sketchy here. So I'm kind of curious to see how Antonio Conte is going to balance and, and uh, balance his team, rotate his squad, and, and how they can continue, continue to stay fresh. This isn't isolated to him. Every team's got to go through it. But I'm curious to see how they perform. But I thought today was another good performance. The North London team's coming up, Heath Pierce. By the way, uh, can I just say that Crystal Palace are a team that early on before Zaha was sent off, I was like, if I could go back, and somebody's <laughs> like, you can't take, you know, like the era's gone in the U.S. where you get to pick a, a, a Premier League team that's won something or whatever. Uh, I would go with Crystal Palace. I love the way Crystal Palace play. The, they had broken through a couple presses of, of – of, um, of Spurs early on, and I was like, mm -hmm. wow, these guys really breaking through, that confidence to build up, to build through, just the pace on their passes, just that confidence to hit the long switches, just a lot of things that were happening. Then you get into the attack, and you're like, okay, this team is very good. Obviously, in the end, Zaha changed it. I think that there was just a uh, – obviously, you're, you're up 2-0 now. You give up a red card. Game's pretty much over. I think they did a good job of frustrating him, getting him to bite on those types of moments. But basically, the three guys that you want scoring scored goals, right? You got Harry Kane, Son, and Mora. And I think Mora's, uh, Luke's Mora's role continues to, to evolve for me in terms of being kind of having that clutch gene or that, that mm -hmm, ability mm -hmm. to create something for a team that's been sort of in the depths. My question for you is, Jimmy, uh, and by the way, it's 2-0 it's to Brighton uh, for, for anybody who isn't watching uh, that Brighton match right now. My question for you is, when I think about Mourinho to Espirito Santo, to now Conte, doesn't that feel a little bit like a plan? I mean, not like it was planned, but doesn't it feel like there's an evolution there? I mean, it's not like they threw, threw the baby out with the bath, you know, like yeah. water. It, you know, it, it's not like 
they just decided to become something different. They're still very defensive-minded. They're still sitting deeper. I mean, that, yeah, they're pressing higher. They're actually best when they decide to step out higher with, with a little more purpose. But, I mean, how do, you de- how do you decipher the differences between the three of them other than just sort of pep talks and, and managerial? I mean, they, they all seem to have the same foundation, unless I'm completely wrong. Well, I think there might be a commitment to one style. And I think Antonio Conte has maybe simplified some of the asks because they're back three, Tanganga, Dyer, Sanchez. That's the same back three that was, you know, cue the circus music. You know, when all of a sudden it's just something, you know, something bad is going to happen. And in the last couple of weeks, I just feel like they've been a little bit more solid and a little bit more solid. And now they're becoming tough to lock down. I think that having Hoiberg and Oliver Skip has really emerged as someone they can trust that can do uh, a lot of things and hold the ball under, under in, in tight spots, which I think is important. I really liked Emerson today. Him, him bombing forward, Reguillon on the other side. Getting that balance right between your wingbacks I think is important, which maybe they didn't always have. They're starting to commit. I think it'd be smarter about when they commit with their numbers. And then you have world-class players. There are world-class players on this team. Lloris is one in goal and, and can, can save games on his own. We've seen that plenty of times as a World Cup winner to prove it. Harry Kane, obviously, Hingman's son. Lucas Mora has glimpses. We've seen it in a Champions League semifinal where he scored two goals out of nothing against Ajax. Like, he's got world-class ability. Now can they extract that on a more consistent level? And we saw Antonio Conte do that with Inter Milan last season. He's gotten the best out of Romelu Lukaku. Ashraf Hakimi was excellent. He brought along Nico Barella, Brozovic. I mean, all these players that play for Inter probably say, hey, this guy helped my career. He helped me take another step. And that buy-in takes some time. But I think Conte's got his guys there. And I really appreciate uh, what he's done. And, and you can see it in that little... And we talked about it with Arteta. The buy-in, it took a little bit longer with Arteta. Conte can come in and obviously has more of a managerial pedigree than, than, uh, than Arteta. So it's going to take some time. But I, I like what he's done so far. However, to use another analogy, the proof's in the pudding, right? So he's got a lot of big games coming up. And when he goes up against Tuchel twice over a two-legged affair in the League Cup semifinals, when he has Arsenal at home on January 16th, Circle that on your calendars. These are very, very big games. And these are going to probably determine how everybody feels about Antonio Conte, you know, come to come the Champions League here or not that they're in it. But uh, and I think maybe getting knocked out of the Conference League is something else. But by the end of January, I think the dust will settle. We'll see kind of what Antonio Conte's made of and what his team is made of as well. And I mean, Jimmy, before we jump to to the, the West Ham Southampton game, which was also a fantastic game. Um, by the way, just all of these games were fantastic. And it was one of those ones where I was like, oh, small sample size. There's less games to watch. And then I was like, as I was watching one, I had one on the laptop on my on my phone. I had one on the TV. And I was like, oh, these are all the games I don't want to happen at the same time because there's <laughs> goals like crazy. And I really want to be able to watch them and break them down because there's such implications for everyone from, from Arsenal to top four to Spurs on the form that they're in moving into five, West Ham falling their form falling, Chelsea trying to get back into a title race with Lukaku coming back on the field. So many great storylines to have happen all at once. Uh, for this, do you think that this this Spurs side is here to stay? Do you think that they're seeing a good run of form, or are you are we seeing Spurs as 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 we've known them in the past in terms of that confidence, that consistency, or are we just seeing sort of the, that new manager bounce? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there is some new manager bounce for sure. That was bound to happen it always happens with every club some of it lasts longer than others but I feel like Antonio Conte is such a professional and comes in with such a pedigree that it's hard to say that this won't be extended in some capacity now they got Southampton and Watford over the next you know four or five days or the 28th is Southampton away Watford away on New Year's and then they're gonna have a few days rest before they have that first Chelsea game That'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. I think they're here to stay. I think that Antonio Conte knew what he had at, with his team. Now, though, we should we have to bring this up. There is a January transfer window that, that gets brought into the equation. Will Daniel Levy give him the funds to spend? And if so, who are they going to go get? Or who are they going to offload? Is Dele Ali still part of the plans and Dombele? You know, that's, that's, if they're going to get rid of those guys, then they're going to have to get something in return. They have to find somebody else to replace what those guys bring to the table. Whether they fit in with Conte's plan or not, not so sure. But there's still great depth. And Deli Ali, I actually thought, was pretty good against Liverpool, minus the finishing part. But he he can be active as well. And I think, I don't know, man, this is this Tottenham team, I wouldn't count them out for maybe sneaking into that 
last top four spot because West Ham seems like okay. they're dropping off. Arsenal, okay. I think, is going to be a competition. Jimmy. Yeah, we're playing today. We're, Arsenal play Spurs today. Who's winning that game? It's a great question oh by Des. He threw it into the running yeah. show. Arsenal what a question. Spurs. I don't know if I should answer this alone. I need some help from everybody. So if you're listening to this, hit us up at Kegelasso Pod. And if you're watching right now on YouTube, hit us up right now. Man, that is a great. I can I can I straddle the fence? You sit on the fence? Like I know you want to go on the fence. Two, two, two <laughs> yeah. draw. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be it would be a. a, a, a I mean, it's tough to say. If if I could see Spurs winning that, if Spurs are clinical. But even at the start of this match today, I looked at Spurs and I was like, man, they waste a lot of chances still. And they've wasted a lot of chances in the last couple of weeks. Granted, they're, they're in great form right now and they're creating a ton of chances. And Harry Kane's finishing and getting that finishing touchback, which means less wasted chances. But even Son is wasting chances and he's their top scorer. What is he? He's like second or third in the league in terms of scoring um, or top five or something. I don't know. He's got something like eight or nine goals so far this season, maybe seven. But yeah, I, I just... I think about that, and then I think about Arsenal probably controlling possession. It'd be a fantastic match, but I, I do think Spurs. If Spurs can, as you mentioned earlier, when you play play a game, if you can score early, if Spurs can do that uh, and be clinical, then I, I I can see Spurs beating beating uh, Arsenal right now. What I find interesting, Spurs have only scored twenty one goals in sixteen games, and that's pretty low given what they have at their disposal from an attacking perspective. Arsenal conversely have scored thirty two goals in nineteen. But what's Harry games. Kane on two, three? Three Harry Kane is on. Th- let me look right now. Harry Kane is on three goals in fifteen yeah, that's games. That's including today. Yeah. Yeah. Hingmanson's got eight. He's six overall in the league. Uh, Lucas Moore only two goals. Hoiberg two goals. Yeah, they need a little bit more, obviously, from him and and some others to step up and start to score on a more regular basis. Takes a lot of pressure off on on that defense, who we know can be pretty pretty leaky at times. Lloris has been pretty solid though this season. I don't know. I, I like this team. I do think there might be a move in their future. I don't even know if Christian Romero really fits their team. I don't feel like he's been lights out since making his move from Atalanta, the Argentinian international. But uh, I think if anybody can deal with how to get the most out of center backs or any players, really, Antonio Conte has really impressed me. I don't know if I was not a believer before, but the Lukaku experience for me has really changed my perspective. What he had Lukaku doing, the confidence that he had Lukaku playing with in Inter Milan was, was nothing short of extraordinary. And it's great to see that still continue. We saw a great example of it today from Lukaku. So I love when Lukaku just says, you know what? I'm going to put everybody on my shoulders. I'm going to drive the whole team forward and make it happen. And I want to give some credit to Conte because I think uh, Lukaku said as much as well. So I- I'm curious to see how he can infect uh, Harry Kane in a positive way, who I think was still feeling pretty sorry for himself for a little while after not making the move to Man City. Well said, Jimmy. Well, here we are, 50 minutes into this show, and I thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about oh, here plenty to uh, talk today. About. <laughs> uh, West Ham lose two to three to Southampton. <laughs> two, to three. two to three. Isn't that a weird thing to say? <laughs> no, that's say like how a six-year-old explains the game. Yeah. Yes. West Ham two, uh, Southampton three. Uh, Southampton, again, they went. They kind of went punch for punch for most of this match, and and there was a point when when Arsenal ran away and then, and then Man City ran away where I was like, I'm going to put it on this match and see, what, see what's going on here. And it just seemed like there was still even an opportunity in the end, uh, West Ham being able to squeak one out. Good to see Anto- uh, not Antonio, Conte, Mikel, Mikel Antonio, Antonio scoring uh, again, which is important. But West Ham continue to fall, continue this slump of form. I mean, what's your takeaways from this match? I'm disappointed, frankly. I thought this West Ham, not that they didn't have the backbone. I mean, that, that gets kind of dramatic. But they have not been playing well and not making those plays, to your point. They got this haven't been Pichu. playing well. By no, the way. they haven't. They haven't. They, that's, I think like su- one win in their last seven as well. Which I'm not surprised. That Southampton team is a little bit, uh, like you said before, uh, like a Christmas tree with red and green all over the place. You know, a <laughs> little good, a little bad. But this West Ham team, I thought, had a little bit more. And the wheels are starting to fall off a little bit. Maybe it's because Mikel Antonio wasn't in the team or even when he was, he wasn't scoring. They have, let's see, one win in their last, what's one win in their last eight in all competitions. Now, they lost to Man City. They drew with Brighton. They beat Chelsea 3-2. Then they lost to Dinamo Zagreb, which that game didn't really matter. They'd already won the group. They drew with Burnley, which I think is a, is a big uh, missed opportunity to gain some points. They lost to Arsenal. The game against Norwich got postponed. And I think that's important because if you ever want a slump buster and you want to get out of that slump, Norwich <laughs> is your team. They lost to Tottenham in the, the League Cup quarterfinals. And that might benefit them if they really want to compete for the top four. So they have to worry about these two-legged affairs that Tottenham now and Chelsea have to play. And then, but losing it home to Southampton when they fought back to get to 2-2, and it looked like the game was going to tip in their favor. And to give up a goal 
on a set piece, which we know is not about talent. It's all about concentration and focus and desire. It's got to be a little heartbreaking for David Moyes because I felt like maybe that's where my disappointment is. That's what those guys were known for is that, that desire that, that, that they're going to do whatever it takes to win a game. And they gave up a goal where that is needed in spades and they didn't make that play. And it seems like that's starting to trickle into their team a little bit. Now, are they tired? Maybe a little bit. But every team has that same type of excuse with injuries or COVID or whatever it is. And they're going to have to fight their way through it. Now, they have Watford away in a couple of days. They have Crystal Palace away after that. They got Leeds twice, once in the FA Cup and then once in the league. And then they play Manchester United. So they have a schedule that they could be manageable, but I worry about this team a little bit because they just don't look as sharp as they have been in the past. I like that, Jimmy. Well said. Well, before we wrap this up, Jimmy, obviously, uh, as of right now, this Newcastle Man United game looks still uh, on and that it's going oh, to happen. Do you have any <laughs> – Do you have? Yeah, does it have to? Uh, <laughs> uh, I sure. mean, just, just in terms of your thoughts going into that one, you, you as a fan, you as an analyst, I mean – what do you what, what what do you expect from this game if it happens? Well, the fact that Manchester United have had some time to rest leading into this and had time under Ralph Rangnick to prepare for it, who obviously is a, is a master preparer in terms of what his teams do and how they do it, that makes me a little bit nervous. Newcastle obviously could say, oh, well, we've had some time, but they don't have the talent to necessarily execute on whatever the game plan is. And that's the problem. And I feel like when you're let's say a Norwich or Newcastle or Burnley, whoever's in the relegation zone, you might have a game plan, but then once a team scores earlier, once a team punches you in the face, can you adapt? And do you have the talent in your team to adapt accordingly? And I'd like to think that a lot of these teams don't. I think the back line for Newcastle is very weak. I think they have some attacking players, but they can't expect to try to do it in ones and twos, right? You want to be able to attack consistently with numerical advantages. Manchester City probably do that the best out of any team in the league. And it just makes it hard. I'm going to see us in a 4-5-1. Callum Wilson's up top. You hope that Alonson Maximin can pull off something. But even if Newcastle scores one, okay, great. But Manchester United is probably slated to score three. So we're going to see a patented 4-2-2-2 from Ralph Rangnick. That's what he likes to do. Fred McTominay will probably be the double pivot. You got Bruno, Jaden Sancho, Ronaldo Rashford is what it's looking like are going to be the starting lineup. And I just don't think talent for talent that that uh, obviously not having a, a clutch player in our team with Newcastle is going to be enough. I think Man United win this game. I'm sure Ronaldo will get one or two. Last time they played at Old Trafford, he got, what, two? Wasn't that his debut? Played against Newcastle at Old Trafford. So, yeah, that guy knows he's thirsty for goals. And it's been a while, so I think this is going to be pretty one-way traffic. There are moments where Newcastle have that, like, 15, 20 minutes where they look pretty good. And you're like, yeah, do that for 90 minutes, and they just can't. So, I'm, I'm curious to see how long we can hold up the fort before uh, Man United score. Once Man United scores one and we have to stretch ourselves, and I'm talking about us as a Newcastle fan, once we get stretched, it's it's over at that point. So I don't know. It's it, If Newcastle can score first, maybe there's some hope to get a draw, but uh, I think this is Man United all the way. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I agree. It, it just, you know, I, I try to go down the mindset of like, well, well Man United, they've got these COVID cases. And uh, so Ralph Ranick's not getting the same exact squad that he wants out there. You're working through a lot of protocols, a lot of players coming back, a lot of health, health and fitness that you need to get them back into a certain level uh, of shape. And that, that can be done for training, but you also got to monitor them and trying to come up with all these excuses uh, as to would I rather play uh, a depleted or a comeback team that's had a lot of time to train like a Manchester United or would I rather play the, you know, like I, what circumstances would be the best time to play in Man United? It still seems always like this where they've lacked game time, they've lacked fitness, they've lacked cohesion. Maybe they've gotten that on the training pitch. But they're lacking that form and that ability to go and beat a team, especially this time of year where you play every three, four days, mm -hmm. and you can beat a team and you can get on a run, and you're like, okay, this is the last team you're going to play if Man United is in form like that. So it seems like an opportunity. But again, when I look at the Newcastle squad, it's exactly as you mentioned, that I just don't see where the weapons are to be able to, 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 to capitalize on, on the opportunity that's being presented to them. Yeah, not for 90 minutes, right? Even at Old Trafford, I'm thinking about the game. It was 1-1 at one point, and Newcastle scored a great counterattacking goal, and then United were reeling a little bit, but then Ronaldo scored that other one and unlocked it, and then <laughs> Newcastle lost 4-1, as they do. What I find interesting is that, from Newcastle's perspective, the schedule's been very unkind to them. Prior to this mm -hmm. game, they've given up 11 goals. Because they're in the, in the Premier League, Jimmy. They're in the that's Premier true. League. That's true. That's true. But it's not a kind schedule. That's fair. But they've given up 11 goals in their last three Premier League games. Okay. And they played against Leicester, Liverpool, and Manchester City. 
And then now they have Manchester United. I don't know who schedules it, but that's some BS, dude. I don't understand how that's even fair or remotely fair. I guess maybe they say, well, we gave you Norwich and Burnley and such and such after that. And okay. But it just hurts right now when you're walking this path and you have to take mm -hmm. on all these top teams, especially a well-rested Manchester United, who, yes, they do have some injuries and some COVID concerns, but it's not enough to put them off. So this is going to be... I really, if you're looking at this from a waging perspective, do you just believe that Newcastle are going to score? If, if Newcastle score and both teams score and United win, I bet you get some pretty good action there. But it's just hard to know because the two league games under Ralph Rangnick have been 1-0 wins. And so it feels like he's really putting a big emphasis on locking things down defensively because they've been pretty leaky up until this point. Well said. I like it. That is it from us, Jimmy. Thank you so much for the time. And for those of you watching or listening follow k Golasso on twitter at k Golasso pod subscribe to k Golasso wherever you get your podcast and leave us a glowing review and if you're watching on youtube make sure you smash that like button and subscribe to the channel because we love doing this we want to make sure that you guys can join in on the conversation and get these videos whenever we make them and join jimmy and i live on youtube again on monday for the usmnt hour we try to do this every single do it. monday do it's it. the inaugural annual award ceremony we'll be looking at 12 transformative months for the Stars and Stripes. Wow. And that kicks off a weekend of year-end specials on the King Colossal <laughs> team. Man, that was a tough, tough thing to read there. Uh, Fabrizio Romano will be on the review. We'll be yes. on to review the best transfers of 2021. We'll celebrate the best of the European game with the second edition of the King Colossal Awards. And Fab will be back again with his 2022 predictions. So, wow. from wow. Des, wow. myself, wow. Jimmy Conrad, and yeah, myself... Yeah, yeah. We appreciate I just keep saying myself. Got to thank well, we love myself. you, Heath. Keep going. Keep going, Heath. Yeah. You're crushing it. Yes, we appreciate all of you guys, and we will see you very soon. Later.